Turn to Psalm chapter 14. I've been here with you all for long enough, certainly now, 10 years and more. Um, You know that there are times I will work through large portions of Scripture, and there are times and seemingly of late that you go from place to place. And I don't know there's a right answer. I think the right answer is where the Lord leads and directs and guides. And there are times, each time, um, in some sense, the Lord just, when you're passing over Scripture, will will just affirm for you in your heart. Some have asked, you know, as a preacher, how do you know, you know, where to go? And and of course, the the answer is you go where the Lord directs you. And that plays out in different ways, I suppose, for different men. And for me, it's just an affirmation in my heart uh, that that's where the Lord would have us to be. And again, there have been times and oftentimes where the Lord has impressed we need to work through an entire set or even a book. Um, We've going from place to place of late. But this is where the Lord would have our our attention today. I, I, I am certain, and I pray that our our attention would be given to it. It's a, a familiar text, but one that, again, we feel is where the Lord would have us to go. Psalm 14 to the choir master, Psalm here of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Of course, being the fool, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Psalm 14 is nearly identical to Psalm 53. If we were to turn there, there's one phrase that is different. It's the exact same song. This idea then, this subject of the foolish heart, claiming there is no God, is a subject of such importance in the Bible that it's in the Bible's hymn book twice. There in 14... And in 53, this idea, and it really will not be the focus of my thought today in, in, in a specific setting of the atheist, the man, the woman, the one who denies the existence of God. I, I do think that that, of course, is a, is a growing problem in our world. It's been growing now for some decades in our nation. I think, by and large, still, though 
I think even as we said last week that while the popular culture certainly would deny his existence, I, I believe that in the hearts of most there is some awareness of something greater than ourselves. There are so many quotes, and I, I do, I just want to read some quotes that I found in, in this idea of, of just atheism and, and, and how it has grown over the years as we quote men that lived long ago and men that lived not that long ago and men that live yet today. Abraham Lincoln said this, I can see how it might be possible to look down upon the earth and be an atheist. But I cannot conceive how one could look up into the heavens and say there is no God. Another man said, an atheist is a man who believes himself to be an accident. An anonymous quote, for an atheist to find God is as difficult as for a thief to find a policeman and for the same reason. It's not looking for him. Another quote, how to trap an atheist. Somewhat humorous. Serve him a fine meal and then ask him if he believes there is a cook. And a not so humorous one. The worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. Theist and atheist. The fight between them is whether God shall be called God or be called by some other name. The atheist assumes that if one has no evidence for God's existence, then one is obligated to believe that God does not exist, whether or not one has evidence against God's existence. And finally, well, that was our final one. So many things that could be said about this debate in a larger context, a cultural context, a national conversation. But I think what David is talking about is the individual heart. Yours and mine. Denying God, according to this scripture, and of course Psalm 53, and in other places as well, denying God makes one foolish. David does not mix words. He simply says, it is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. I was with Brother Bryson. I don't remember where we were, whether it was Liberia or Ghana, Kamasi, and somewhere. I was with him somewhere. I don't remember again where it was. We were talking with a man, and he said he didn't believe in God, and and Brother Bryson said it in only the way that he can without being so terribly offensive that a person turns him off and he says, I've read about you. I've read about you in the Bible and it calls you a fool. And he began to continue to share the gospel with him and thankful for that time as I remember it in my mind. But denying God, first of all, makes one fool a fool. And that's what I want to talk about today is a foolish heart. Foolish heart would be our title. I know it seems ironic to me anyway in our culture that those who believe in God are said to be the fools. 
even though I think there's evidence all around, and again, I'm not going to get into all of these things that we've talked about in the past, all of the evidence that surrounds us of the existence of God, not only surrounds us externally, but surrounds us inwardly in our hearts, in our core, Inside, deep inside of a man, there is that place where there are questions that cannot be answered without the reality that God exists. And losing that awareness, denying that truth, makes one a fool. And we want to say that at the outset, and we do not want to miss that. But where is this said? It's not merely said and spoken with the lips. David doesn't say that it is the fool who simply says there is no God. He says the fool is the one who says there is no God in his heart, inside of him, maybe never spoken outwardly, but spoken in the heart. Saying that you believe in God means little if you don't truly believe it in your heart. If you are not truly convinced of it inwardly. There are, I think, many people who fall into this category. They live in what might be called practical atheism. They voice a belief in God. They give, they give words to a belief in God perhaps even have an intellectual belief that there is something greater, that there must be a God, yet live as though He doesn't really exist. Listen, it matters. And I'm going to... I will be labeled Captain Obvious with some of my remarks today. But I think sometimes Captain Obvious needs to be heard. It matters to you and me, and it ought to matter to our lives that God is real. It matters. Heaven is real. Hell is real. This matters. That our lives are terribly brief things on this earth, and we then ought to spend them wisely and to the best use of God. It matters. It's important. This isn't religion merely that we are dealing with. It's God. The one when there was nothing, was. And called everything else into existence. It matters. It matters that our friends, our families, our co-workers, and the stranger we meet are all now swept up by the river of time that flows into the ocean of eternity. It matters. And it's the fool that says, in his heart, there is no God. He lives as though he's not impacted by the reality of that unfathomable truth that there is God that is greater than all of the things that we know and feel and is greater than all of our problems. And when our problems have shriveled up and become dust and scattered into the winds of eternity where they no longer matter, God will be and so will you. 
And so will I be. Because I, like you, have been created in the image of my Creator who called me from nothing somewhere in the early part of 1972 when I came forth from my mother's womb in January 1973 and I've been here in this world for 50-some years and I was called into existence and I'll never, ever be called out of existence. I will go from this life to the next because that's what God has said. And it is the fool who says in his heart that there is no God who has said such thing. It matters. It should matter to every facet of our life. Every component of it, our jobs, where we live, who we marry, what we do with our time, what we do with our money, what we do with our talents. It matters. It's the fool who says in his heart, there's no God. Oh, that every time that we would go to spend anything, whether we spend our time, our money, our talents, we spend our attention. Don't mistake don't don't misunderstand your attention is a currency like any other it is spent and then it is never again to be had to spend again where you place your thoughts and your mind and your heart it is spent and oh that every time we go to spend our attention and spend anything else that we've been given that it would be spent in the light of the fact that god is real, that Jesus actually did come and dwell among us and did die on a cross for us, for our sin, to make the way to God available, that we would not merely give voice to this belief, that we would not merely say it, that we yes, we believe that there is a God. That's good. That's better than the fool who denies him, perhaps, but only by a measure, because in our hearts is where it matters. Whether we truly have this belief in our hearts, that we would not merely give God a sliver of our attention on Sundays, but that he would have our undivided attention through our lives. And you say, how could you even do that? You've got to get up and go to work and you've got to eat and you've got to do the mundane things. You ever notice, by the way, in movies and television shows, nobody ever mows the lawn. Nobody ever prepares dinner on a routine basis. Nobody, nobody goes to just do the mundane things of life. Nobody seems to get to those things. How can you do all of these things with, with an undivided attention to God? It, it's living in such a way that all the things we touch and do is done in, in the recognition of God that he is real. And in our hearts, we know he's real. Maybe, and we can all perhaps fall into this at times in our life, all of us, none of us immune from the, from the very real danger of living as what a practical atheist. And so we ask ourselves, if somebody examined my life, would they see evidence that I believe in God, that my belief in Him is real? It's more than just words. It's more than just something we do on Sundays. Believe in God. That I am not as a fool would be, that in my heart I would deny that. Would they see a man? Do they see a man who believes that? Or do they see a man who is living a life that in 
that is in view merely of this one? Or would they see one who is living their lives in view of the life that will follow their deaths? A very present awareness of the world that they will open their eyes to the very moment after they close them in this one for the last time. Is that in your heart? Is it in our hearts? Is it in mine? It's the fool who says in his heart there's no God. So what say you today in your heart? In your heart. And you see, you're the only one that can really read that aside from God. You ever heard the phrase, don't guess you can ever really know anyone? There's some truth to that. Because there's a place in your heart that only you can see, but God can see it, and He can read the words that are there as no other man can, but read it, He can, and read it, He does. God reads the words of our hearts, whether they ever be spoken aloud or not. And He knows whether our hearts are saying foolish things like there is no God. God does read it. God knows the language of every human heart that He has created. And He knows every word that is spoken there, no, though no other man does but you. This is why it is essential in any proclamation of the gospel message that the Spirit of God is the one who's taking the words and lodging them into the hearts of all that hear because the preacher himself cannot read the words of your heart as desperately as he might want to, as clearly as he might think he does. He does not, but God does. And God takes this word that he wrote through the Holy Spirit inspiring men that for thousands of years now we've been able to read and preach and proclaim and the Spirit of God takes it and He reads to you His words and He reads your words as well. And He knows and He has the conversation that can only take place between a human heart and God. And it's a one, it's a two-way conversation between an individual and God. It's not a three-party call. It's not a conference call. When you go to God to be saved, it's not a conference that is had between you, a preacher, and God, or you and mom and dad and God, or you and this other person and God, or a committee of people, or a group of people to proclaim, you're a good person, so God surely believes that. This is a conversation that is had, this is a communication that is had between an individual heart and God. Nobody can tap into that conversation. It's only between you and Him. What is your heart saying today? And then, only then, do we begin to ask the question, what is my life saying? We should be concerned about that, but one needs to lead the other. Your heart will lead, ultimately. So what did God ask for? Give me your what? Heart. He wants your heart because he knows that's where you are. You know, physically, 
intellectually, mentally, we can be in many places. We cannot be present where we are. I'm guilty of that far too much of the time. But you know what? Spiritually, it's between God knows where you are and that heart of yours, that part of you that He is trying to speak to you, maybe even right now, as He's calling out to you, He's wanting you to come to Him. And those of us that know Him, He wants to have continued communication and continued fellowship with. And then we go through our days with hearts that cry out aloud, like Job said, I know my Redeemer lives. I know He does, and I know I'm going to see Him in the latter day. God knows the language of your heart and mine, and He speaks it clearly. He knows what's there, so listen to Him and communicate with Him and go to Him. Allow Him to speak to you and then obey what He says. You know, as I said earlier, and it's true, Psalm 53 is, is nearly identical with Psalm 14. There's one phrase that's different, but there's one other difference that's important that I didn't mention. In Psalm 53, it's the word when he speaks of the fool says in his heart there is no God, and it goes on to speak, and it references God. In that, in Psalm 53, the word is Jehovah, which is, or excuse me, it's Elohim, which is a reference to God, of course, but it can also be used to, as a reference to small g gods. But here in Psalm 14, we don't have uh, the Elohim as the Hebrew word. We have the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, his personal name. God as a person. There's a lot of people that have a knowledge or a thought of a knowledge that they, of, of, of a God. There must be a God. And maybe some people say, like the Hindus, there are 330 million of them. But here... In Psalm 14, the Lord, Yahweh, Him, Himself, as a person, God says these things. God does these things. This is the personal name of God. So this is not just the experience of an unknown supreme being or power. Unfeeling, unthinking. Knowing that there is a God is not the same thing as knowing God. And the two should never be equated. Satan will be fine. If he has to give ground, he will give ground because it's so undeniable in the human heart, I think. And when everything truly is measured and truly weighed, Satan will give ground and say, okay, fine, you can believe that there is a God. Just don't come to know Him. Just don't know Him. Just go about your life and accept and think for a minute that simply because you acknowledge and give, uh, give, give thought to that there must be a God, that it's the same as knowing Him, and it isn't the same. And that knowledge, or excuse me, that that mindset, heart set, we should say, saying there is no God, it leads to corruption. As he says, they're corrupt, which is it's just, it means they're decaying. Man is by nature corrupt. He is a decaying creature. I know this by personal experience at this point. 
The best we can do is slow the corruption. We can't stop it in these sinful bodies. All the incredible advances in science and medicine, and yet death is as sure as it has ever been. We can replace the human heart. We can do incredible things. Incredible things. Death is just as sure as it has ever been. We are corrupt. The denial of this increases the pace of that corruption. When you remove God from hearts, the hearts of the people, when you remove God from there, you remove any real hope for restraining man's wickedness. It is the belief in God that restrains that. It's not anything less than that. History has shown this time and again. Civilizations have never once advanced in any meaningful way when that civilization denies the existence of God because it's a civilization of fools. In fact, for civilization to be at all civilized, a belief in God is essential. It's necessary. A belief in a God to whom all are ultimately accountable and to whom all will one day stand and hear their eternal judgment pronounced. That is essential if we desire to have civilization. What are we seeing today? Representation of more and more chaos. Less and less rule of law. Less and less accountability to a God that one day all of us are going to stand before and it makes us and leads us to be foolish and corrupt. Remove this accountability and man's sin is free to roam and express itself in all of its horrific forms. And you remove it from your own heart and it frees you to walk down paths of foolishness. It's done that for all. It's done all that deny him. Individual lives here are the same as civilization. Remove the present awareness of God from your life and mine. Our sins find purchase in our minds and hearts, bringing with it the corruption, the decay, the pain, and the loss that sin inevitably brings. And this is why it is the fool that says in his heart there is no God. Because it leads to corruption, further abominable works, he says. They do abominable deeds. I think this is a large part of the problem in our culture today. There's little godly restraint because of the rampant denial of God. I know that's easy for a preacher to say. But that doesn't mean it, make it any less true. This ongoing denial has brought abominable deeds. And abominable means loathsome, detestable. Detestable deeds. I looked up some, some, some things that I was curious about after this as we think about our nation particularly. In the United States every year, there are over 21,000 murders. It's 57 a day. Who knows how much child abuse and neglect goes on, but the number that staggers all of it, this was in 2020, 930,160 abortions. 2,548 of them every day of the year. 106 every hour. Detestable, abominable deeds. 
a nation will do when it removes its belief in God and detestable and abominable deeds lodge in our own hearts when in our hearts we say the same. You see, you see, <laughs> this idea of God's existence, do you know why we struggle with it so much? It is not a scientific debate. That's where we want to place it. That's where we want to put this question. Does God exist or not? And we look to science today to answer the question. But it's not a scientific question, and it is not a question science can answer. Again, that's how it's typically framed. We let the experts, quote-unquote, who claim to know, quote-unquote, that God doesn't exist, and the, quote, idiots who believe that he does. We let the experts just handle it. But you see, science doesn't care what you do with your conclusions. Doesn't care. It's unfeeling. It's passionless. It's amoral. But the human being is a creature made in the image of his God and there is more to life in the material world and we know it. We know this is true. But in our day, we seem to miss the elephant in the room. You know what? You can't objectively observe God scientifically and so he must not be real. Then let me ask you follow-up questions. What are we to do with love? With hate? With happiness, with joy, with sorrow, with grief, with pain, we can't measure those objectively either. So, do they not exist? Are they not real? We know these things can't be scientifically quantified, but we know and no one in their right mind would argue their existence. And yet, ironically, judging by the data in our present day and throughout history, a denial of God brings pain, suffering, and loss to the world, while acknowledging his existence brings peace and safety and prosperity. You follow the thread of Christianity through history, and you will find prosperity and peace. Yes, you will find persecution. You will find difficulty. You will, def you will find harshness, but you follow a civilization that has accepted and acknowledged the Christian view of the world, you will find prosperity. You follow the thread of atheism, and you will find terrible, terrible loss and pain and wickedness. Broken lives, broken homes, broken nations, broken churches, filled with people who might even profess to know God, but in their hearts they deny Him. Where God knows the truth lies. And you know what? We're all, we're all condemned here. In one sense or another. They've all turned aside. Verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if any, if there's any that understand. This scripture isn't just talking about Hitler, Stalin, Mao, fill in the blank, mass murderer. It's talking about everyone. Verse 1 said it, there is none who does good. Verse 3 repeats it, there is none that doeth good. No, not one. No exceptions possible with this scripture. Every man, every woman, every child is corrupt 
and evil and does no good. That is what the Bible says, and that is what God, who we know exists, has said. Sin has been made light of so much that men don't take being called a sinner that seriously. It's not a big deal. We lack an appreciation for the total depravity of man as the doctrine is referred to. Men in their carnal nature reject and despise God. They do so because He is good and they are evil. One of our biggest challenges as Christians today, I believe, is to convince a society that has become drunk on religion that they're sinners. Dress up the outside. Pay little attention to the inside. Say the right things. Never feel the right things. Outwardly do the right things, inwardly fighting it all along the way. We think of ourselves as good and look the other way at our sin. One of the biggest obstacles, I think, to true true holiness in our lives is to remember that apart from God, we are all wretched and poor and blind. We simply do not appreciate the depth of our own depravity as it is laid out here. And this is true. These things I'm saying are true because it has been spoken by God. It's what He has said. And I know... I know that what I am saying here today will not bring very many smiles to faces. Many are going to turn a deaf ear to the words if they ever hear them. But before you dismiss them entirely, listen to one final thing that I might say to you. Consider the fact that these are not my words. They are God's. This is not merely my assessment, though I agree with it. It is the assessment of God. The Lord looks down from heaven to see if any understand. This is his assessment. This is not mine. The Lord sees this assessment that he undertakes. He hears, he understands, and he knows all. There is not the smallest detail that God misses when he observes the world and the earth and your heart and mind. As he looks down upon the crime scene of humanity, he sees all. If he, and if he made this search, and if he didn't find anyone, then I don't think we are either. If God made the search himself, looked far and wide, looked over the whole earth and every heart that he's created, and he didn't find one, neither will we. The Lord was just looking for anyone, just one. Is there anyone? No, not one. I said it three times here in different ways. If we think we are good apart from Christ, we need to think again because God apparently does not agree with us. You need to think very carefully. Anytime you come across Scripture, when you've studied it as well as you can and perhaps even learn taking counsel from others who've studied the same thing and, and you come to fairly certain understanding of what the Scripture says and it's different from what you think and feel, there needs to be some continued prayer Study contemplation. Because when I disagree with God, I know who's right, and it's not me.
It doesn't matter how many people might think well of you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people think of you one way or the other. What matters is what's going on in your heart. In the sight of God, apart from Christ, we are all unclean. And there is no other way to read that passage and come to any other conclusion. And yet, this is not the whole story. This that we have taken time to consider today about the foolish heart claiming there's no God and, and having that be the, the, the actual condition of our hearts as we live our life, whether or not we give voice to that or not, living in such a way that thinks he's not real or a practical atheist, as we said, that's important. It's, an, it's the essential to understand the depravity that we bring to the equation with our sin. Just the sin that besets us, the sin that we were born with, the sinful nature that we have here in this life, but yet this particular part of the story is not all of the story. Again, the essential first part, but it isn't the end, or at least it doesn't need to be. Even this psalm speaks of hope that those who trust in God have, doesn't it? At the end, though the world would eat up God's people, the Lord is our refuge. Then the world would cast us aside and call us whatever they want to call us. Then the world at large might seem to be going on and leaving us behind and then perhaps even taking advantage of us as God's people as the world always has. It's the Lord that is their refuge. Yahweh, His name, He is among us and with us. So, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad he finishes this song with. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Understanding Psalm 14 and its condemnation of the entire human race is needful. It's important. Otherwise, you don't understand that verse. Luke we read a similar idea. We indeed, as, as the thief is hanging on the cross next to Jesus, as he was first hung there, both of those thieves reviled Christ. Both of them uh, uh, were speaking ill of him, but by the time that six hours on the cross had come to an end, one of them had had a deep and everlasting change of heart, and he said this, this one thief who changed his heart and, and asked the Lord to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, and the other thief was still reviling him and still saying negative things about the Lord, and the one who became a believer says, look, you shouldn't do that. He says, we are hanging here justly, in verse 41 of chapter 23, and we are receiving the due reward of our own deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He had a change of heart, but it is Christ who died in our place, and He is the one. God looks out into the world and He sees is good. He is the good one. Never forget that. Never let go of that. 
It will hold you firm in the midst of the time when you feel weak and you feel uh, as though you have fallen again and again and again and you can't be good. Remember, it's Christ who is good. It is the Lord who is good. We all are, merc- are, are benefactors, those that know Him and have come to know Him and acknowledged Him in their heart and repented for their sin and trusted in Him and He has spoken peace and forgiveness. Remember, He still yet is the only one that is good. The truth of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and many other passages is why He died. The painful truth of man's sin is why the truth of God's love, mercy, and grace is so precious. Listen, when when you preach a gospel absent of sin, you preach a gospel absent of salvation. You cannot have one without the other. It doesn't stand to reason. It doesn't stand to, to, to any kind of rational observation. And Jesus said it this way, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Those who acknowledge in their heart that they have, they have denied Him by their sin and they have rejected Him and they have rebelled from Him, and yet as He draws them and they begin to understand Romans 5, 8, yes, you're a sinner, but I sent my Son to die for you, to take your place. In the world that is coming, it's going to be Christ that makes the difference for you. It won't be your good deeds. It won't be your deeds at all, one way or the other. It'll be your belief in or absence thereof of Christ and acknowledgement of God. And Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance and call sinners to repentance. He does through His Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God uses the Word to convict our hearts of sin. We realize we are sinners before Him. The judgment has been made and the sentence has been pronounced. Guilty. The gavel has been lowered. The judge has said, you're guilty, guilty, guilty. There's no more evidence to be brought in. No more good deeds to be done to try to reverse the ruling. No more, well, I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to be a, I'm going to do good things. No, the, the condemnation has been delivered. We're sinners in the sight of God. No more evidence to be brought into the case. There are no more witnesses to call to the stand. Mom, dad, friend. None of these, no witnesses who will be able to somehow testify to your righteousness and your goodness. The case is, the case is over in the sense that the judgment has been made. God has rested his case and man stands guilty. But Christ died for man so that man can be made righteous once again before God through the perfect shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, the very Son of God. It is a fool who denies such things. Do not deny that in your heart. I want to close with Daniel some passages from here in chapter 5. And it's 
it would be too long to try to read the whole story, so I want to just summarize. We know the story here is the end of the, the Babylonian days. Persia is getting ready to take over the world, and they're outside the gates, and Belshazzar is having a feast. He's thrown a feast, and he's got a thousand lords with him. <clears throat> he's having a grand time. In the middle of that feast with, the, with Cyrus, I believe, outside the gates, and it's an incredible story to read historically of how they get in to that city of Babylon um, through the aqueduct and a gate that had been left open. I encourage you to read it, but Belshazzar is just saying, yeah, the enemy's outside. They'll never get in here. He is openly mocking God on this feast. He says, hey, go get those vessels that we brought out of the temple of Israel that are to this God, Jehovah. And let's let's drink and let's have feasts and let's drink from those vessels. And he's, he's, he's doing essentially what a fool does. He's not real. Belshazzar's having a grand old time. And in verse 5, in the midst of that grand old time, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. Can you imagine? And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together as this hand wrote on the plaster wall. You skip down to verse 22. That hand is written many, many, parson, and we'll read that here in this passage. Daniel has come, and they're, they're writing on the wall, and Belshazzar says, somebody needs to tell me what that means. What, is it? what does it mean? And they call their magicians and their wise men, and they, of course, couldn't answer the question, and somebody says, hey, Daniel can probably tell you what it means. So they bring Daniel in, and this is what he says, you son, Belshazzar, after, by the way, he had told Belshazzar all that God had done to his father, Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar had, according to this account in Daniel, had, had at least turned and acknowledged God. But he says this, Daniel does to Belshazzar, you've not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You have been a fool in your heart. You've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, the Lord Yahweh. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron. You have praised the gods of wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Belshazzar. Mene, mene, tikel, a parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tikel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. The judgment's been passed. I've weighed it, God says. I've weighed you, Belshazzar, you man who thinks you're king and some great thing. The Lord of heaven has weighed you in the balances and you have been found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. It's done. And that's exactly what happened. Tikal. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. 
This scene has played out countless times in countless human hearts since that day. It played out in mine when I was 11 years old. I'd been weighed in the balances and found wanting. I acknowledged and understood my sin. The Spirit came to my heart and He convinced me. Let me know I was a sinner and that I had no hope of heaven outside of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But in Him I had hope if I would repent and believe. And I thank God that I responded that day in repentance and faith. And He saved me and he gave me peace, he forgave me, and there was a heart that acknowledged and knew God for the first time. How will you leave? What will you do with these words? Leave a fool who will one day be found wanting? Or one who has set his hope in Yahweh, the Lord of heaven? Acknowledge him, I beg you, in your heart, seek him if he is dealing with you. These lives we live, they're, they're terribly brief things and uncertain. Eternity is eternity. Time is time. I beg you to be wise and respond to the word of God in a way that would bring wisdom to your life and prosperity to your heart and peace eternally. And so acknowledge him today if he's dealing with you. and Respond in repentance and faith. Do not be one who says in his heart, there is no God. And do not live as one who believes that.